just to start us out, question is, and don't be bashful, even if you're online, uh, raise your hand to this. How many of you, when you go on a trip, you love to plan ahead? Maybe months, maybe a year or two out, you get, the, you get the map out, you map out everything, you look online, you plan out where you're gonna visit, where you're not gonna visit, where you'll stop for gas and other necessities, what sites you'll see, right? There's those of you. Okay, that is a legitimate way to plan for the future. How many of you just sort of get in the vehicle and go? Right, you just trust the Lord in all of these things. Now, now let's be honest, uh, the sparks fly when these two meet and get married and try to plan a trip, but actually, both are legitimate ways to plan for the future. Both are, uh, both have pros, both have cons, so it just depends on uh, your personal wiring to determine which you prefer. And today we're going to look at a theme that we see in an Old Testament book we don't usually go to, First Chronicles, and we're going to look at a series of vignettes from the life of King David that will help us as we think about this theme of preparing for the future. But before we get into the text, it's good to know some of the background context of all this. See, the background context is when the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, were brought out of Egypt into the wilderness, God instructed Moses, create for me a special tent of meeting, a tabernacle, if you will, and there would be special implements in that tabernacle. Everybody knows of the Ark of the Covenant, thanks to Indiana Jones, but there were other elements, too, that went into that tabernacle. And as they entered into the Promised Land many years later, they took that tabernacle with them, and it meandered around the countryside in different locations, and it was a, a point of center of worship. And through the years, the tabernacle suffered from periods of neglect and renewal, attack, and uh, reestablishment. And so we come into the story today, it's good to know that in the backdrop, that the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and those things are kind of uh, not too far from the city of Jerusalem in a priestly city. And so as we get into this topic of preparing for the future, I think in terms of sort of outline. So if you'll permit me, I kind of see six steps in preparing for the future that we can glean some wisdom from, from the life of David. And the first step is this, to investigate the need. To investigate the need. Now, um, David, he was the leader of the people. He was the second king of the people after Saul. And David, what's remarkable about him is he was a incredible warrior, better known for his poetry. He was a very successful man who was really better known for his faith. And, and he was a, a guy who, who messed up big time. Big level sins, felony level sins. And he's better known for his repentance. And so David knew something from his own personal experience, but as he looked around, that many of us take years to discover that the greatest solutions to the greatest problems that we face in life are not economic solutions, are not political solutions, are not military solutions. They all have their place, but those are not ultimately the solutions that deal with the great need all people face. The solution is a spiritual solution. Now that sounds cliche, and I'm a pastor, so you're like, well, of course, you're in church, you're supposed to say that, but it's true. 
Doesn't matter who says it, that's true. And David, we know this because we have a lot of his journal. They're called the Psalms. But this is what David did. After David had constructed buildings for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one but the Levites might carry the ark of God. If you look back, they got in trouble for having other people carted around. Because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. David assembled all Israel and Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to the place that he had prepared for it. See, uh, David had recognized that his great success was because of the Lord. But he also realized that there was a need that when people would come to visit him as the leader of the nation, why not make it easier on the people to not only visit him but to worship, to uh, spend a little bit of time in prayer or sacrifice on their way to or from visiting what was the political epicenter of the nation. And so that yielded, after this investigation, the implementation of a plan, and that's step two. You see, if we're preparing for the future, at some point we have to implement a plan. Now, no plan from the get-go is perfect, no matter how much investigation you put into the plan. Our own uh, Pastor Marty, he has this expression, I love it, he has this expression, he says, we just do the next right thing. Now, some of you operate from a century at a glance. You like to plan far, far, far down the road. And we do this as best we can around here, but sometimes you can't. Sometimes things happen. Opportunities avail themselves. And so we just step into the next right thing. And David does this. This is what the text tells us. It says, um, they brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. And then what's he do? He throws a party. Because if you're going to assemble people in a religious gathering, you better feed them. And so that's, you know, we have free coffee here. They it, can't do church without that. And he, he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of it was good food. I mean, to us, that. I'd rather have like a, a bonbon or something, you know, a little more. But to them, this was good stuff. And then this is the part that we will often glance by. But it says, um, he appointed some Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord. And see what he tells them to do? To what? Extol and to thank and to praise the Lord, the God of Israel. You know, those three words, there's a little subtle nuances that uh, are, are good to just dive into. I don't know about you, but I don't extol a lot, and I don't encourage others to extol a lot. But uh, the word there, it just means to recall or to remember. And you think about this, the Levites had much to remember. So David says, hey, as you're gathering for worship and other people are listening in on this, make sure that you remind yourself and you remind the people all that God has done, that he chose our father Abraham and he brought him into the promised land and then he preserved the people in Egypt and when problems ensued, he brought the people out of Egypt and he protected them through the wilderness and he brought them into the promised land and he subdued all of the tribes of the region and he allowed us to live in peace. This is all God's works. So remember, 
And there's a lesson in this for us, too, to remember all God has done, not just in human history, but in our own. Well, there's another word here, and this is to thank. And I love the, the inference. The root here is to shoot like an arrow or to throw, like throw down as in some sort of battle. And, and we've all at some point or another thoughtfully given a gift to a person. And then the person's like, oh, thanks. And you kind of want to just yank it out of their hands in that moment, don't you? You're like, I thought about this. And you are just going, oh, thanks, you know? Well, what he's saying is that the Levites are to be expressive in their gratitude. They're to throw down in their gratitude. They're to be physically all in in their gratitude. And then to praise. To praise is to, um, the, 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 uh, the root of this is the idea of shine or boast. Not in the self, not in what we've built or done, but to boast in God. That's what we're to do. And just, you just picture what that worship assemblage must have been like. You, you'd go, I can imagine someone going, hey, on the way to the palace, I'm going to swing in for a little bit of worship. And they got caught up into it and later had to explain to the king, I was a little late because your worshipers are really good. I couldn't help myself but linger there. Well, this leads, um, as I mentioned, no plan is perfect from the get-go. You implement what you know the best you can do with what you got at the moment, but then there's always an opportunity to improve. And so this is the, the, the second or the third step is to improve when and where appropriate. Not just improve for the sake of improvement, but there is a improve where appropriate. And David makes an observation. This is what he sees. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, that's his spiritual advisor. He played a significant role earlier in a more dramatic story. He says, here I am living in a house of cedar. The cedar was imported from Lebanon. Even now the forests of Lebanon are beautiful. And it was a major export for the, the, the leaders of Lebanon. And so the, the cedars were imported. And so David is living in a lavish house with imported elegant wood for the time. And he's enjoying not only the aroma of cedar, but he's enjoying his home. And he makes an observation. He says, I'm living in a house. Literally, I have walls and the Ark of the Covenant is camping. The Ark of the Covenant it literally surrounded by curtains. Now, I, what's interesting is God, when he said, hey, make me a tabernacle, he told him what kind of curtains to make. The Lord said, hey, you're all living in tents, make me a tent. And so David makes this observation. I, I, I'm living in a nice place, and it seems inappropriate that, that the worship center isn't as nice as the place that I live in. The, the ark is camping. How many of you, and don't be ashamed even though you should be, how many of you like camping? How many of you, there's some of you. Now, I want, no, let me do this again. How many of you camp like in a tent where you sleep on a root kind of camping? There's a few of you out there. The, if you pull a fifth wheel, you're just taking your motel. That's not camping. <laughs> not a chance, that's something, but it ain't camping. But this summer, when we were coming back from Michigan, my family, we camped one night. We, and if you know me, I don't like camping, but we can't. Well, I mean, to be clear, we stayed in an old motel. So that was, <laughs> that was camping. And uh, we stayed at the old motel, and they had a continental breakfast, which usually in a hotel or motel is a good thing, but this had like two cereals. I went down, and I'm like, hey, where's the coffee? They're like, hey, we forgot to order it. 
There was no coffee at the campground motel. And I thought for a moment, this is pretty much what Navy SEALs go through in their training. <laughs> David, David looked at the tent. He looked at the, at the ark and he thought, this is not right. I'm gonna build it. But he goes to Nathan and Nathan says, great idea. And then Nathan gets out the door, down the road a little bit, swirls right back around and comes back and says, it's not gonna be you. It, it, God says, you can't build it. Your son can build it. And, and, and at that point, a normal person would go, well, I wanted to improve it, I can't, so, well, I'll just go on and build, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll buy myself a new chariot or something nice, you know, I reward for my altruism, but no. No, David, David comes up with a plan. God said I couldn't build it, but he didn't say I couldn't be behind the scenes of it and to prepare for it. Now here's what's fascinating to me is that this is in all likelihood in the closing chapter of David's life. And the reason we know this is because he's about to entrust to Solomon as a what's called a co-regent grand responsibilities. And we know this when we put all the history together that this is towards the end of David's life. And so in his closing chapter, he's thinking of the chapters of the books yet to be written. Now, that's a vision. That's a hope. And, 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 so, um, and so this comes to step four, and that is to inspire the next generation of servant leaders, to inspire the next generation of servant leaders. And this is one of the things I dearly love about our church. If this is the only church you have ever known, then you don't realize how unusual Crossings is. I've had the privilege of serving congregations across the United States. I've served uh, churches that were all young people, very young. And we didn't have any older people in our congregation. So while we had a lot of energy and neat ideas, we didn't have anyone to say, you know that idea has been tried before and this is what happened. We didn't have anybody to temper it or to guide it or to coach it. What we were lacking was wisdom. The wisdom that comes with years and experience. And, uh, but I've also served a, a, a church that was in the more golden years of life. And what we lacked there was the youthful energy, the innovation. We, we didn't have many people going, hey, why don't we try this? All the why don't we's had already either left or weren't there. And so we lost that. And here at Crossings, this is just a remarkable thing. Like I said, if this is all you know, then just thank God for it. But if you're from somewhere else, you probably looked around at when you first got here and thought, this is wild. We have really young and young and used to be young and wish they were young and young at heart. And we got all these people. And one, they seem to get along, which is weird in church, but they actually seem to invest in each other and glean from each other. Now that shouldn't be odd, that should be normal in the church. And it's normal here by God's grace. So David, he looks at the situation, he says, hey, if God says I can't build it, I'm gonna invest in the next generation. So here's what he does. He pulls Solomon aside, his son. He says, then he called for his son Solomon. He charged him, build a house for the Lord, the God of Israel, David said to Solomon. My son, I wanted to build it. God said I can't, but he said you can. Then, then now my son, the Lord be with you. 
And may you have success and build the house of the Lord your God as he said you would. May the Lord give you discretion and understanding when he puts you in command over Israel so you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you'll have success if you're careful. Note this, if you're careful to observe the decrees and the laws that the Lord gave Moses for Israel. Now, this, is, this next line, for some of us who've been around church for a while, is gonna be a familiar line. If you're new to all this, don't worry about it, but he says, be strong and courageous. Does that sound familiar? It's reminiscent. There was, a, there was another duo, dynamic duo of leaders, Moses and Joshua. And there, there was a couple different instances when Moses was entrusting to Joshua leadership of the people and the, the words that were uttered is, now Joshua, be strong and courageous. Now why would he say that? I mean, why would he say this to Solomon? Solomon's a prince, he's the son of the king. He has the military and the resources. You know, you know why he said it? Because if you lead anything ever, you know you need strength and courage. You need fortitude. And if you don't have that, you're in trouble. If you've ever led in an HOA, <laughs> if you lead at work, in your home, if you're a parent, doesn't matter, whatever's the context of where you lead, you need to be strong and courageous. And so um, David is, is doing this remarkable inspiring of the next generation, but um, also not to miss is that it's not just be strong and courageous, but know what God teaches, know what he expects, and then do that. See, our culture says, hey, be strong and courageous. You're awesome. You be you. Be the best you you can be. You should just be proud of you and all these other things. And we all know it's a lie. We do because we keep saying it over and over, and it apparently none of us are believing it, because we all know in ourselves we're vulnerable and weak. But in God, we're strong. And so this is a, this is a remarkable lesson of leadership that we get to just look over the shoulder of Solomon as David speaks to him, and we get to glean a little bit of wisdom from this father and son interaction. Know who God is and what he expects. Well, this, um, it's one thing to inspire the next generation, but you gotta resource them. And this leads to the, to the fifth step in the process to invest strategically for the future. See, David, uh, David understood that um, we can naturally invest in things that benefit ourselves, but it's almost supernatural to invest in things that benefit people down the road that we don't know, that we don't see. And here is what, um, here's what David says uh, to Solomon. He says, hey, I've, I've, um, I've taken great pains. I've, I, you're gonna build the house, but guess what? I've taken great pains to provide for the temple of the Lord. 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver. Qua Do you know how much that is? A lot, that's right, it is a lot. <laughs> Scholars are like, if that's literal, that's, a, that's way too much. Maybe what they're saying is they just lost count. They just piled it up in the backyard. And it's like, there's plenty. Don't worry about it. There's quantities of iron and bronze and all these other things. And, and, and you may add to them. I like that. He's like, hey, I did some stuff, but feel free to contribute yourself. You have many workers. And then he lists the kind of workers that are out there. The, the skilled tradespeople that were doing the actual work. And I love how it concludes here. 
You see how it concludes? He says, now begin the work. In other words, what he says is, get up and do it. That's literally what he says. Now, I, I can't do it. You're called to do it. I've assembled all this. Now, just get busy and do it. And what's, you know, we often call the temple that was constructed Solomon's temple. But actually, we should call it David and Solomon's temple. David was a major contributor to it. Solomon constructed it, yeah. But it was with a lot of David implements. I wonder if Solomon, the scriptures don't tell us, but I just wonder if as Solomon was walking through that area, if he looked up and saw the, the beams in the temple when the door was open and thought, those are the beams my dad donated. I wonder as he walked on the stone around the temple, if he, if he looked down at the pavers and thought, these are dad's pavers. If he, if he saw all the gold, it was elegant. It was beautiful. If he looked at the gold and thought, well, dad could have bought more with that, but instead, that's, that's the gold dad gave. There had to be this uh, reflective moment. And it is a remarkable thing when one generation invests so deeply into a generation they may never know. You know, many years ago when this, the North Portland location was being constructed, there was a discussion amongst our leaders, our elders, and they asked one another, should we, maybe, um, maybe we should do the siding with a, a, a more, a, a, a less expensive option for the siding. And the, the decision was made, no, we're going to build with brick, not because it looks better, but because we want this to be here a hundred years from now. Because brick conveys stability and strength and durability and perseverance. It's not just an appearance thing. It's a messaging thing. And many of the elders that sacrificed dearly and sat around and discussed that very issue are with the Lord now. And they didn't know all the things God was going to do in and through this church. But I'm telling you, they didn't do it for a building. They did it for us. They did it for the people God was going to transform. That's why it was done. That's why we continue to do what we do. Well, David said, get up, uh, Solomon, and do it. And this leads to step six. Step six is to invite others to engage. Now, David's king, Solomon's co-regent. They could have said, we're building this. We got the resources, the power. We'll just make it happen. But he doesn't. He pulls a whole group of people in, starting in verse 17. He says, then, uh, then David ordered the leaders of Israel. So the men that he had served alongside and their kids and their kids' kids. And he says to them, is not the Lord your God with you? And has he not granted you rest on every side? For he's given the inhabitants of the land into into my hands, and the land is subject to the Lord and to his people. So now, get this is the line. Now devote your heart and soul to seeking the Lord your God and begin building. We're all devoted to something. What are you devoted to? It's easy to find out what you're devoted to because it's the thing or things you think about all the time. As your mind kind of goes to a relaxed place, you think about that. Item, person, people, experience, something you're looking forward to. That's what we're devoted to. You know, it's Jesus who said, um, wherever you place your treasure, that's where your heart's gonna be. And, and so 
David says, devote yourself. Put your treasure where? In this building, no. In the stability of the kingdom, no. Devote yourself and soul to what? To what? The Lord. Devote yourself to the Lord. And so there's this pulling in of other people. It wasn't just David on his own or Solomon on his own. Now here's, here's something very interesting that uh, you may not realize is that First and Second Chronicles, they, they, this came together as a historical work after the events of this had transpired. Nobody really knows who the chronicler was. Many historians think it's Ezra who wrote the book of Ezra. Maybe it was, but nowhere in the book of Chronicles does it say, hey, by the way, this is Ezra. I'm writing it right now. Like, we don't know. But what we do know is that it was written after the temple was destroyed and the ark went missing. The ark goes missing during the time of Nebuchadnezzar and only Indiana Jones knows where it's at now. <laughs> the temple's gone. And they're writing about these events and the passion behind these events, even though that's gone. Why? Because it was never about a building. Chronicles is about two houses. If you read through First and Second Chronicles, over and over, you'll get the message. This is about two houses being constructed, the house and line of David and the house of God. That this is the story of uh, two lines that are intertwined, the reputation and the glory of God and the reputation of David in his line. Now, here's the thing, though. If you read First and Second Kings and you read the rest of Chronicles, you realize David's line's not so hot has some high points and low points until one, until one day one would be born of the house and lineage of David, who would be a convergence point that no longer would the house be a place we go to, but we would become the house through the Holy Spirit in dwelling the believer. The apostle Paul explains it succinctly at the beginning of his very, very important letter to the Christians living in Rome. He says, God promised this good news long ago through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. This isn't something that was just crafted. No. The good news is about his son. In his earthly line, he was born into who? King David's family. He's from the house and line of David. But he's the better David. He's the one. And, and he was shown to be the son. He was proven to be, he was displayed to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. And just in case you're wondering, I'm talking about Jesus Christ, our Lord, Paul says. And so as we go into this time of communion together, as we, in a tactile way, engage with elements, a piece of bread, a cup. As we interact with these, we're reminded that this is and always was not about facilities, but about God and about God's interaction with us and his movement into our lives as we surrender ourselves to him. It was the apostle Paul who said on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took, he took bread 
he gives thanks and he passes it around to his friends. And he points out that this is going to, they're never going to touch bread the same way again. Because from now on, they're going to think, especially in what is called communion or the Lord's Supper, they're going to think, this represents Christ's body, which is given for you. So let's take together. And Paul says in the same way, after supper, he, he takes a cup and he, he declares, this is a new covenant. That's a language from the Old Testament, but this is the new one. This is the permanent one. He says, this is uh, representative of my shed blood. So let's take the cup together. Paul concludes with a really remarkable line. He says, when you do this, you declare the Lord's death until he comes again. In other words, you're declaring he was resurrected and ascended and has a plan to come and bring his people to his side. And that's why we gather every week because we are people of hope. We are people of that promise. And so as the service concludes in all of our different rooms, we would invite our prayer team to come forward as I pray and as we conclude our time together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for all you've done, all you do. Events that unfolded 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago into this very day. You are the living God in whom we have hope. We give you thanks for all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen and amen. If you need prayer, come down front.